All right, the youth can be dismissed. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere within reach on a chair. You might have to look around just a little bit. Definitely grab one so you can follow along in our study. Romans chapter 8, as we really continue and, and ascend in our time of worship through the hearing and the study of God's word. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. And here at Cornerstone, we want to do our best to take the Word of God seriously and the preaching and the exposition of the Word of God and hold it high as we're commanded to in Scripture so that the Lord can have his rightful place and exercise lordship in his church. Romans chapter 8. The title of our message this morning is The Two Kinds, The Two Kinds of People in the World. Well, we just have been digging into Romans 8, and again, as you're turning there, just welcome to everybody. Great to have you, especially if you're newer or visiting. It's a joy uh, to have you with us this morning for worship here at Cornerstone. So we've just kind of been getting going in Romans 8, started at uh, chapter 1, verse 1, taking it one little section at a time on this new sort of series in Romans 8 on the believer and the Holy Spirit, what the scripture has to say about this critical topic. In this next passage, the scriptures, God's inerrant word, tells us that there's a sense in which there are only ultimately two kinds of people in the world. Uh, There are tons of sort of lesser kinds of people. There are people with all kinds of different giftedness and skills and talents and hobbies and Uh, eye color and ethnicity and strengths, weaknesses, whatever you want to call it, all over which God is sovereign. However, in in this passage in Romans, there are really ultimately two kinds of people, those with the Holy Spirit and those without. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and those who are not. Uh, Those who have been reborn spiritually by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and those who remain dead spiritually without the Holy Spirit. Those who have been given spiritual life by the Holy Spirit and those who yet remain in spiritual death, being without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Those who, we might say, are regenerate, by the Spirit, and those who are unregenerate, those who are saved and those who are unsaved, those who are Christians and those who are not, all synonymous. It is things like trade school, much training, skill, hard work, and maybe an apprenticeship that will make a guy certified in the trades, or maybe dentistry school and a residency that makes somebody a dentist, But it's the Holy Spirit that makes a person a Christian, and that alone, him alone, that gives regeneration. 
John MacArthur writes this on the issue, quote, the Holy Spirit is to a believer what God the creator is to the physical world. Without God, the physical world would not exist. It has been created and is continually sustained by the omnipotent power of God. So the Holy Spirit, who also participated in the creation of the world, is to the Christian. The Holy Spirit is the divine agent who creates, sustains, and preserves spiritual life in those who place their trust in Jesus Christ, end quote. So it's the Holy Spirit, we could say, who creates the Christian. It's not me deciding one day that I need some moral reform in my life that makes me alive to God and a believer. It's not me sort of becoming embarrassed or ashamed by bad habits in my life and I decide one day I want to scrub myself externally, my behavior, and therefore I'm going to be a Christian now. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that makes someone a believer, that creates in them new life, that passes out of spiritual death to spiritual life, and that irreversibly. It's not going to Sunday school as a kid that makes someone a believer. It's not uh, grandma's advice or prayers that make someone regenerate as important and as good as those things are. It's the power of the Holy Spirit alone, the scriptures teach. The third person of the triune God. You can no more be a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit than an ocean can be an ocean without water in it. We can no more live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit than a human being can live apart from a beating heart and lungs. So the role and the nature of the Holy Spirit and the difference he makes in a person's life, that's the issue of our next passage, what we've just been getting into as last week we studied verses two and three. Follow along then as I read. I'm gonna start actually uh, at the end of chapter seven. We understand that the verses and chapter delineations were added much later when God breathed his word. I'm going to read verse 24 of chapter 7 through verse 8 of chapter 8. God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word reads. Chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand... I myself in my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Verse 1, chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just want to read that verse again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and, and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. 
Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. This is the reading of God's word. Well, what a book Romans is. Uh, God's people and theologians, pastors for centuries have rightly understood this to be the most important book in the Bible. Uh, it, it, it lassos and gives to us in glorious, unrushed detail all of the stuff we need to understand the most important issue in life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, God the Son coming down out of heaven, becoming a man, Jesus to do one thing, as we read it there in verse 3, to do what the law couldn't do for us, to live the perfect righteous life, die the substitutionary atoning death in the place of all who would simply put faith in Jesus Christ, to remove the otherwise, otherwise just sentence of condemnation we have on us for failing God's law and for violating his commandments. You saw there in verse one, there is no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That is in a sense what, what everything has been, everything we've been studying in chapter one through seven, chapter one through three, there's great condemnation because nobody can keep God's law. Nobody can jump over God's moral bar. It's, it's not seven or eight feet, you know, for speaking in proverbially in high jumping terms, it's eight billion feet. Nobody can keep God's law, how God intends it and requires it to be kept in his righteousness and thought, word, and deed, and attitude and action. We're all condemned. And so the way back for, for a human being, the way back to God, reconciliation with God, is not through, you know, trying harder, being gooder, you know, voting more moral as some of those th th things might be good. But it is Christ coming down, doing what we could not, doing the most difficult thing any human achievement could ever possibly do, and that is to live perfectly according to God's commands and his law so that when he died on the cross, as it says in verse three, he, he was condemned he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, Jesus had flesh. He was a real human being is the idea. He was, he was God's son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful flesh. Jesus was not sinful. But in other words, like, which, which is just to say, it's a fancy way to say he was a true human being, like sinners, but not a sinner. And so for all who believe, God does an exchange, a substitution, a switch. All who believe, God says, okay, instead of condemning you justly for your sin, I condemned my son on the cross, though he only deserved worship and praise and exaltation because he never sinned. This is the way, the only way that a human being can go to heaven and be right with God and have forgiveness is we fall on Christ in faith, ask him to forgive us, and God, con God considers our sin, past, present, and future, to be condemned when he condemned Christ in our place. 
And you'll never hear better news than that. This is the greatest news in the universe. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose bodily and victoriously three days later. Why, why does that matter? To show that he was without sin. And that he alone was qualified to be the one who, okay, all my sin can be dumped on him. And all the guilt and all the, the penalty I deserved can just be backed up and, and piled upon him. So that by faith in him alone, there is now no condemnation. But that only can be said of those who have fallen on faith in Jesus Christ. So then, we get to Romans 8, and Paul wanted us to be reminded of that. And now he's talking about Romans 6 through 8 is kind of the so what of the Christian life. So what about that? So what that we're saved? Now what? And there's this thing called sanctification, which means God begins to change you, not before faith in Christ, but after and consequent of. And then we see in Romans 8, we've we've hardly seen the Holy Spirit mentioned at all in chapters 1 through 7, but now, up until verse 17 in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit's mentioned like almost 15 times. The Holy Spirit is the issue now, being essential to the Christian life and to the believer. We, we pulled over last week and parked for a little bit and, and, and talked about who is the Holy Spirit, who is he, not it. Who is he? He's a he. He's the third person of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And I was reading in preparation for this message um, some, some, Quranic, some Quranic individuals who follow the Quran, and they say, well, this is ridiculous, the Trinity, because it's a contradiction. And, and we, would, we, would, we, would, we, would, we would gently decline and reject that because we're not saying that there is one God and three gods. That would be a contradiction. We're just saying there is one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, three persons, Matthew 28, 18, uh, 19, 20. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is a he, not an it. Acts 5, 3 tells us he can be lied to. If you can lie to him, he's not an it. What does he do? We saw six things that he does. He convicts, convicts of sin. Jesus mentioned that to us in John 16. He regenerates, John 3, 3 to 8. Titus 3, 3 to 5. He, he indwells the believer permanently, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He comforts. He's a comforter. Jesus said, I'm going to send the, the, the Greek word as paraclete, the comforter, the helper, John 14, 26, comforts us in our battles, gives us the mind of Christ. He seals also every believer at regeneration, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, which is the idea of ownership. He says, you are mine now. You're under the ownership and the care and the love of Jesus. And he sanctifies, 1 Peter 1, 2. He's the engine of change and the newborn Christian the born-again Christian. And so we saw in verses 2 to 3, starting out, verses 2 to 4, there are three ways the Holy Spirit gives this, gives assurance to the regenerate believer. That was our outline last week in verses 2 to 4. Three ways the Holy Spirit gives assurance. Assurance of what? Of salvation to the believer. The text in Romans 8 is going to talk off and on about assurance. Number one, 
He, the assurance, he gives the assurance through the freedom the Holy Spirit gives in verse two, freeing us from death, from the law of sin and death. Number two, we saw the Holy Spirit gives assurance in reminding people, reminding us of the gospel, verse three. What a glorious verse that is. Just look there again. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh. In other words, the law can't save. God's moral commands, they can't save you. They're an x-ray machine. They show what's broken. An x-ray machine can't fix a broken bone. They show it's broken. The law of God, God's 10 commandments, just show, oh boy, I've fallen way short. The law can't save, but God did. Verse three, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. And we breathe a sigh of relief. No condemnation. I hope you know that by faith in Christ, the peace and the glory of no condemnation. And the third thing that the Spirit does, number three, the transformed life in verse four. This is where we left off. The transformed life by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the transformed life, verse four. Look at verse four. So that the righteous requirement of the law, so that what? Talking about the glorious verse we just read in verse three, the no condemnation, salvation God gives. Why does he give that? Verse four, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, excuse me, but according to the spirit. Apologies for that. So notice God doesn't forgive us, save us, so that we can go on living however we wish. The so that in verse four is so that, notice the law is still in place for the Christian. It is not a ladder we climb to get into heaven. That's settled by Jesus and him alone. But the law is still in play, and this is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been one of the more misunderstood, unnecessarily so, doctrines in Christianity in in about the last 120 years. And so Romans 8 is so helpful to tell us, well, actually, what does the Holy Spirit do? The things we've been seeing, among others, here in verse 4, he gives us the transformed life. He begins to transform us. <clears throat> so that we would now fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Before salvation, we cannot fulfill. We cannot, in other words, obey the law. Only once we have the Spirit of God. That shows, by the way, before we put faith in Christ, how dead we are spiritually, notwithstanding how great we might feel in our unsaved state. We're dead. We cannot fulfill the law just means keep actually begin keeping God's commands as they're meant to be from the heart one writer says this quote the provision of deliverance from the power of sin is through the death of Christ but experience it in one's daily conduct comes through the controlling power of the Holy Spirit and and this particular part here in Romans is, is intended to give us assurance of salvation to the regenerate believer. That you see, by God's grace, you see the spirit who has sealed you beginning to transform you. Like, like wow, okay, I'm not perfect, but I respond different, differently in these circumstances than I used to. And in these daily battles, I'm not just triggered into scent 
and to ungodliness like, like I used to. I see by God's grace the Spirit, not perfection, but certainly transformation. And that is to give you assurance as a regenerate believer because you see that and it's like there's no way I could produce that by my own strength. This is a power from heaven. You know, the comfort, the peace, and hard stuff. And that is to give assurance. Beloved, this is, this is one of the great, if not the greatest purpose of the Holy Spirit, apart from gener- regeneration, is transformation. Tenderizing the heart. You know when you tenderize meat, you take that. You take that like spiky hammer and you nail that thing. And you nail that thing, right? And it takes sometimes more than less swats and poundings and that meat becomes tenderized. This is what the Holy Spirit does to the hard, dead, granite heart. He tenderizes you to begin to live for God, new desire, new obedience. And then this, now we come to verse five to eight. And you see this now, Paul wants to talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit and not having the Holy Spirit, what it means to be regenerate and not regenerate. And he wants to pull over and park and talk about ultimately the two different types of people that we would deepen in our understanding of of the Holy Spirit and what he does. He wants to nail down what theologians call a pneumatology or a study of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to contrast life with the Spirit and life without, that there are ultimately two different, only two different types of people. And so he makes three contrasts here, three contrasts in verse 5 through 8, talking about three differences of life with and without the Spirit. And he says, number one is this, verse 5, there's the differing natures of the regenerate and unregenerate. Number one, the differing natures of the regenerate and the unregenerate. Thank you. Look at verse five. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. And then in verse 6, you could just to get a little head here to see, he says, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The word but there is just contrasting and saying there are two. There's this, but then there's this. Two different types of people. That's what's going on here. Now, what's going on here? Back in number 1, verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This is not comparing behavior between different types of believers. That is not what it's talking about here. It is not talking about behavior. It's not saying, well, when a believer's in the flesh, having a bad day in those times when they're in their spirit. Rather, it's comparing unsaved or unregenerate without the spirit with saved and with the spirit. How do we know that? In verse five, he says, those who are according to the flesh, the word translated are there, it refers to a state of being. Not like a mood or behavior of the day, but your nature. Those who are in their nature, the flesh. And then this word translated, set their minds. 
It's one word in the original. It takes about three or four words to translate in English. The word has the idea of to employ one's faculty for, for thoughtful planning, to think in a particular manner. Your faculties are directed towards thinking in a particular way. It's not talking about your mood, but your nature. And then flesh refers to spiritual deadness in the unregenerate person, the not yet saved individual. So he's starting out. Okay, nature, verse five. Those who are according to the flesh, their minds are, are on the flesh, are dead. He's simply saying those who are of spiritual nature are dead. Their minds function in spiritual deadness. They're thinking on things that are the opposite of Christ, the opposite of scripture. They're devoted to it in their thinking. But by contrast, this different type of person by nature, those who are, who are in other words, those who are existing according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who are regenerate, in other words, if you have the Spirit, you're regenerate, you're alive, you're saved. Generally speaking, not perfectly. We just have Romans seven fourteen to 25 where Paul says it's, you know, it is a battle. As a Christian, you're not perfect, you're being changed. Perfection will be in heaven. But in general, you're, you, because your nature, who are according to the Spirit, saying those who, their new nature is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, their minds in general are, are set by the Holy Spirit. Okay, bottom line, the text is saying two types of people in the world. Those who by nature are dead spiritually without the Spirit, those who are alive spiritually with the Spirit. Number two, verse six. So there's the two differing natures, now the two differing spiritual states. The two differing spiritual states. Look at verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So Paul's going a little bit more deeper and specific on talking about the two different types of individual. There's one whose their mindset is death. There's another whose mindset is life and peace. And notice the first part of verse six, very important. Paul likes to get technical and kind of heady and it's good that he does, that helps us. The text does not say something like, well, the mind set on the flesh results in death. It does not say that. It doesn't say the consequences of the mindset on the flesh is death. Rather, it says the mind set on the flesh is death. Who cares about that? Why well, should I care about that? It's a reminder again that this passage is not talking about behavior, but nature. It's not saying, well, if your mind happens to be thinking on fleshly things on Monday, you know, a hard day at work or with the kids in that very difficult situation, well, that's going to lead to death. It's not saying that. It's not saying about, it's not talking about consequences from behavior. It's talking about state of being. So if anything, it's saying the opposite of consequences of, from behavior. In other words, the idea of the text is this. Since the unregenerate person is spiritually dead, since that's their state, their minds are set on spiritual death. Hope that makes sense. Their minds are set on fleshly things. Since they are spiritually dead without the Holy Spirit, 
their minds are set on fleshly things. And then it's saying in verse, the end of verse six, since the other person, since, since a regenerate person is spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit, their mindset is life and peace. Very important distinction. Extremely important. What does it mean that the mindset of the unregenerate is death? Spiritual death. Without God, without Christ. Enslaved to self. Enslaved to self-glory. Enslaved to the values of the world that are contrary to the, the beauty, the moral beauty of Christ and Scripture. Enslaved to that. See how powerful the Holy Spirit is and how necessary he is to life. But those who have spiritual life, their mindset, verse 6, is life and peace. They're general. This doesn't mean perfectly every day we have peace and we're thinking on spiritual life. It's not saying that. But the general state of being for the regenerate person with the Holy Spirit. There's life there. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It means our minds, we have the mind of Christ 1 Corinthians 2 says that we generally, we, we value the things that please Christ. We strive for the things that please Christ. Their life, a sign of spiritual life. We, we grieve in our own personal life when our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes are contradictory to Christ. That's just the idea. Very simple here. And peace. That with the Holy Spirit, he gives us peace. And this is, I think, both objective and subjective. Objective peace, meaning we have peace with God because the Holy Spirit is, is indwelling us because of salvation. There's nothing better to have peace with God. And you don't get peace with God through an adrenaline rush or the clanging around of chemicals in our glands from looking at a Teton sunset. That, that might give a warm feeling, but not peace with God. Only Jesus Christ gives peace with God. Him being not at peace on the cross so that we could be at peace with God. And then the subject of peace that the Spirit gives. When stuff is hard and you know what, if I die, like I'm going to be okay by God's grace because Christ has been condemned in my place. This is the peace and the life that the Spirit indwelt, regenerate person has. And it's so good to have that peace. The door to true peace, everyone's looking for peace. The door to true peace is traveled through Jesus Christ and then functioned, upheld, sustained, and grown through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Third, our third look here at life with the Spirit and without, number three, the unregenerate's differing demeanor towards God. The unregenerate's differing demeanor towards God and his word, found in verse 7 and 8. And Paul gets, gets kind of in everyone's kitchen in verse 7 and 8. Number three, the unregenerate's differing demeanor towards God and his word, verse 7 and 8. And in verse 7 and 8, he says about four things. He, he wants to really make it clear. Paul kind of, the apostle of grace here, he draws a line in the sand. I mean, a deep one. A chasm in the sand. 
And he says, I really want you to understand what the person without the Holy Spirit, the unregenerate, the unsaved, what scripture says they are like. Not what culture says. Not, you know, the cultural Christian and, and sort of the, the other person, but actual, actual Christian regenerate between unregenerate, not a believer. He says four things about the demeanor of the unregenerate person, the person without the Holy Spirit. Number one, he says the unregenerate mind is hostile toward God. They're hostile. There, there's no neutrality in any of these terms. Christ said, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no, you know, am I for Christ, against Christ, or undecided. You're hostile towards God. Look at verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh, again, that's nature, which is to say that the mindset on the flesh, you could, you could also insert there, the person without the Holy Spirit, the unregenerate person, is hostile toward God. That Greek word hostile there means an enemy, an opponent, against. And there are often about, I mean, there more than this, but generally I think there's about two, two different ways you see unregenerate hostility play out in people. There is irreligious hostility towards God, and there is religious hostility towards God, both in, the un, in an unregenerate person. There are these two kinds of hostility that we see play out. First, the very obvious, irreligious hostility towards God in the unregenerate person. The person who, they don't want God mentioned in, in public life. They don't want God mentioned in politics. They don't want God in school, in sports, nothing. Get, get even the mention of God. Get that word out of here. That's obvious hostility. We, we understand that. You start talking about God and, and they wish you would just be quiet. And it's sad. And we need to have compassion and pray. Because without the grace of God, so would we be. But then there's this other kind of hostility that is a religious hostility. Within that obvious False, false religions, false faiths that are totally contradictory to Christianity. But then even more subtle, you see this, and Paul dealt with this, and James that we read in the opening reading in James 14, 214 to 26, James is talking about this when he says, look, faith without works is dead. He's not saying you're saved by works. It's works that evidence you are saved. And he's talking to people who would profess faith in God but are unsaved. And Paul is picking up on the same thing here in an unregenerate but religious hostility towards God. They would say that they believe in God. Uh, they would say that uh, they, 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 they profess God. They're okay with God being mentioned in public life. They're very kind people. They probably vote conservative. Uh, they, are, they are outwardly moral people. And it may be harder to see the underlying hostility, but it's there and it will show. It will show. This is how it will show. When the word of God is brought to bear personally on their lives, that's, that's where the hostility will begin to be stirred. This is the unregenerate, religious person. The next phrase in the text gives more detail about that. Second, under this point, the unregenerate refuses to come under the Bible. 
The text says here that the unregenerate person, this person without the Holy Spirit, refuses to come under, to come under the Bible. Look there in verse 7. For the mindset, excuse me, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to go, toward God. Next phrase. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Four. Explaining more about what just happened, what you just said. The unregenerate, it, in other words, the unregenerate mind, the unsaved person does not subject itself to the law of God. The word translated subject there, it means to submit oneself. Uh, the word was used in ancient times in a military context to speak of when there was a general, a, a, a military high-ranking superior, and, and, the, and the lower-ranking soldiers would line up behind, line up in rank and file behind the superior. They would subject themselves. They would come under the rule and superiority of that general for a great purpose. But here it's teaching submission not to a general, but verse 7, to the law of God. In other words, to God's commands, to what the Bible says, what the Bible commands us to do. And this kind of submission, very important, it is not an external submission only of mere outward gritting the teeth. Okay, I'll do this. Okay. You know, the unsaved person without the Holy Spirit can succeed in not committing adultery or murder outwardly speaking. They can do that. But they can't truly keep that command in the tenderness of the heart and in the thoughts and in the attitude, which Jesus said in Matthew 5, to 48, is the true manifestation of subjection to God's word. Now, as with hostility towards God, the first one, this lack of submission to Scripture can show in, in, the, in the irreligious person, right? They don't want to submit to God's word. That's very easy to see. They, they hate God's word. They hate God's, what God says about sexuality. They hate what God says about gender. They hate what God says about marriage roles and all that other stuff. Okay, that's obvious. But in the religious unregenerate person without the Holy Spirit, a little more subtle, here's how it plays out. There's a second type of refusal to submit to the Bible in the unregenerate person, the religious person. When someone, for example, loves them enough to say, you know, you say you believe in God, but there's, there's like this pattern, not a one-time thing, you know, here, but there's this pattern. Some things that really don't line up with that. And then the hostility towards God and the refusal to submit to his word will then begin to show in the, in the unregenerate person where they will have a hostility to coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ, which is synonymous with, is, which is synonymous with saying to coming under a heart submission and obedience to the Bible. We have this command, we have commands and, and, and things about humility, Confessing sin, loving people, being involved in a church, the one and others, all these are impossible without the Holy Spirit. And when these things get brought to the religious, unregenerate person, they never get traction. They never get traction. They don't have this heart submission and obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Beloved, 1 John 2, 3 and 4 says this, By this we know we have come to know him. 
right? And that's helpful. Whatever comes next, we want to listen. How do we know we've come to know him? How do we know we're saved? By this, we've come to know him, 1 John 2, 3, and 4. If we keep his commandments, and the keep there has the idea of in heart and attitude. Verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, end quote. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, end quote. So this is the second type of manifestation of hostility and unsubmissiveness to God and to his word in the unregenerate person. When they have incorrect ideas about God and spirituality and, and someone shows them from scripture, they're not really having it. They like their ideas about it. They are their Lord, their God. This is all about the Lordship of Christ. You know, just one example, that popular book that came out years ago about the kid who said he died and he went to heaven and, and, and had these visions and supposedly this amazing experience in heaven. The book sold millions of copies and, and all of this stuff. And then the kid later, years later, said he, he said he lied. He said, I actually didn't. That didn't happen. I just lied about it because I wanted attention. And the book was like the greatest thing ever. And other books like The Shack, The Shack, that say super untrue things about God. I mean, they present a different God. And, and then this type of person who would gravitate and cling and white-knuckle these, you say, and you say, you know, ah, those, those books, those ideas speak in a way that's contrary to God, and they won't, they won't ever get traction in coming under Scripture. And they might say things like, well, I mean, what's the big deal? You know, we all believe in God and, and, and this book and the ideas and, and this teaching, they, they make me more comfortable with spiritual things. And, 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 and that's how I like to think about God. They, they help me to think in a way about Christ that I like and that's more palatable for me. And of course, we understand from places like Exodus 20, Exodus 32, that that's called idolatry making a God in our own image. And, and, and they will say that and persist in that even though these ideas present a false God and a false gospel. This is one of many examples, this type of demeanor and hostility towards God. They are okay with God from a distance, esoteric mentions of God, conservative values, they're okay with that, generalities, but they are not okay with the personal lordship of Jesus Christ coming to bear on them as individuals. I am in subjection to Jesus Christ, which is synonymous with saying, I am in subjection from the heart to the Bible. There is no such thing as being under the lordship of Christ, but not under his word. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, and, and you don't do what I say? So the issue with the religious, unregenerate person that is okay with mentions of God, ceremonies that have God's stuff, the issue with them is the personal lordship of Jesus Christ and applying scripture to the particularities of their heart and their life and their sin. Their sin is off limits. 
But voting conservative and having good moral values and saying God now and then in a prayer, that's okay. But they're never crushed, as we must be when we come to the compassionate Savior. By the weight of our sin and the holiness of God and the cross and the gravity of my offenses against God, without which you are not saved. There is no spiritual life. There is not regeneration. And it's unloving of us to give forward any other message because that would be contrary to Scripture. This is the religious unregenerate person. It's about the lordship of Christ, isn't it? They want to be the Lord. They would never say that, but they want to be the Lord their God, and they worship themselves with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength, Not, notwithstanding conservative values and a general morality and general mentions of God. Notice in all of these four characteristics in verse seven and eight, we've done two so far, of the unregenerate person of the Holy Spirit. Not once is it said, well, they say they do not believe in God. They say they're not Christians. Why does that matter? Because it's not talking about profession. Paul doesn't care a lot about profession. The issue is in the life, the coming under, by the grace of God, we understand we cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. The issue is coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, personally, and in the particularities. Paul, nor Jesus, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, is not concerned with profession. Jesus already said that. What do you call me? Lord, Lord. And, and, and you don't do what I say. This is because the greatest evidence of regeneration is submission personally and in the particularities to the freedom and the beauty and the grace of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The greatest sign that someone has the Holy Spirit is generally, not perfectly, but a heart that's in submission to what the Holy Spirit has said, and he's not saying anything more apart from what's in this book. If he is, you need to write a 67th book. Scriptures are sufficient. And the sign that we're indwelt by the Spirit is by God's grace, not our strength. We're nothing coming under his word. The end of verse 7 and 8 clarify why. Why is there this unsubmissiveness in the intergenerate person? Number three, they're unable. Unable to come under God. Look at the end of verse 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And here's an even more humbling statement. End of verse 7. For it's not even able to do so. Wow. The unregenerate mind, he says there, look at verse 7, is not even able, not able to do what? Not able to come under the, the, the word of God. That, that's amazing. What a humbling statement. The unregenerate person is unable. Unable. They can't. They might be able, again, externally to not commit murder, but from the heart, the true keeping the law, they're unable. Now, why does Paul, why does he save the unregenerate person in, in verse 7 
of their mindset. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. And then for it's not even able. Because he wants to make it crystal clear in understanding the Holy Spirit, he wants to make it crystal clear the nature of the person without the Spirit. When he says it does not subject itself to the law of God, that's a statement of the will. Unwilling. But when he says it is not able, the unregenerate mind is not able, that's a statement of ability. And this is what theologians have mentioned forever is the the doctrine of total depravity. The unsaved, unregenerate person, the person without the Holy Spirit, they are unwilling, unwilling to obey God, and they are unable to obey God. This is exactly what the text is saying. And we see how important the, the Holy Spirit is. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. They're they're unable. And beloved, that should move us to have a compassion on those without the Holy Spirit. In other words, our unsaved friends, family, and neighbors. Yes, there is an unwillingness. They hate God, no matter how conservative they vote and how religious they might be outward, but they're also unable. Fourth, there's a fourth thing it says. Notice verse, verse eight. Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Look at those words. Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. That is humbling. And Paul sort of repeats what he's been saying about the unregenerate person to make a firm point about depravity, that we would appreciate the Holy Spirit Again, in the flesh does not mean the believer who's having a rough day. It's not what it's saying. It's not talking about sanctification, but nature. He's saying the unregenerate nature, the unregenerate person, they are unable to please God. No matter what they do, they cannot. So you see what the difference is with and without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for an unbeliever to please God. They could give millions and billions of dollars to whatever. Yes, that has like a horizontal benefit, but they are not able, if they do not have the Holy Spirit, according to verse eight, not able to please God. Why? Because only the Spirit can give us the ability from the heart to do things for the glory of God, without whom we only do them for the glory of who? self. And that, of course, is a shattering of the first two commands. You need to have only God, worship him only, and you may not make an idol. So without the Holy Spirit, we are perpetually in shattering of commands one and two over and over and over and only, which is why without the Holy Spirit, you cannot please God. This is what it says, beloved. This is absolutely what it, what it says and what the reality is. We see how massively important the Spirit is. Without him, we're hostile enemies of God. We want to we be Lord over our Lord. We're unable and unwilling. What a dark situation then the unregenerate have. What a dark, dark situation they are in. And we would be amiss if we concluded here, wouldn't we? Because... 
we understand from earlier in Romans that whether you find yourself, if you're unregenerate, and you find yourself as an unregenerate religious person who you've been on the treadmill of behavior and moralism, thinking my, my good works, my external good behavior, that's scrubbing me of my sin and making me pleasing to God. And you see here in the text, you're not pleasing to God. You're hostile towards God. You're an enemy of God. Or if you might find yourself as the irreligious person, you, you do not care at all in your unregenerate state about pleasing God. Whatever it is, the great news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, it's just belief, it's just faith, shall not perish but have eternal life. And no matter how displeasing you've been to God or deceiving of yourself or what outward rank sin you've been enslaved to or inward self-righteousness you've been enslaved to, God says, God, 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 God would want to point us back in effect to verse three and said, what the law could not do, what you could not do in your own strength, namely get to heaven, make yourself pleasing to God, give yourself new life, regenerate yourself, what you could not do, God did because he loves you. He sent his son and the flesh and condemned sin in him. He wasn't a sinner. We are the sinners. And if you would simply Cry out to God. The Bible will say later in Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you would bow the knee to Jesus Christ in faith and forsake your works, forsake yourself, forsake trusting in yourself and just say, God, I, I, I need my sin condemned because I stand condemned. I believe on your son. I want my sin to be condemned in him because otherwise I'm going to hell and I deserve it, even if I've been the most outward, moral person in the world. I've been worshiping myself. And God the Father eagerly and instantly welcomes the filthiest sinner because his pristine son died for our sins and all of our sin, past, present, and future, was condemned, paid for, gone, annihilated, such that by faith in him alone, you today, this instant and forever, this is irreversible, can hear the wonderful words, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you that though naturally in our unregenerate state without the Holy Spirit, the way we enter the world and grow up apart from salvation, we are naturally very condemned. But we thank you for your beautiful and wonderful son in whom there was and is no sin, and yet he was crushed for our sins. Thank you for him. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his substitutionary atoning work, his glorious bodily resurrection. May none of us leave here and go to sleep tonight without putting our faith in him. And Father, as we go out, I pray for all of us, those of us who have been saved. As we go out this week and life can be a challenge and the work week can be a battle, I pray 
by the power of your spirit. Help us, as we saw in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of your law, that we would be able to obey you. Lord, when we're tempted, not if, but when we're tempted, and the devil tempts us, and tricky situations tempt us, I pray for all of us in here this morning that by your spirit we would have strength, Lord, in those moments to walk by the spirit so that your name, the name of Jesus, would be glorified in whose name we pray, amen.